Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour on the radio where we talk about science. And on this week's show, I'm going to be talking about why elephants don't get cancer. You might not know that, but this is the truth. Uh, the rate of cancers in elephants is unpredictably low. So did they not get cancer at all? No, they just get at a very low rate. Okay. Um, but and it's got nothing to do with the fact that they don't eat bacon. It's No, it's nothing to do with the processed meat or absence <laughs> thereof in their diet. Um, but yeah, they, they have uh, some people have done some work and figured out possibly what is helping uh, elephants stay healthy in that respect. Claire, you have an animal story for I, us. I have another animal story this week. I'm looking at um, bees and the relationship between humans and bees um, and how we have worked together and, um, well, maybe more humans have enslaved exploited them. bees rather than us working together. Dance, um, bees, dance. <laughs> they, they get some benefits, surely. Maybe. Protection. Protection, um, geographical range, habitat, that that sort of thing. Yeah, foraging, foraging areas. rights. Yeah. Yep, yep. Mm, um, mm. But it, it's it's been a much longer interaction than anyone realised, and there's some new research that that's come out to um, to to show that. So that's what I'm going to be looking at. Story B, Chris. With story C. Yes, story C. C is, for, of course, for the speed of light, as we all know. And this year, it being a, a very special year, the 100th year of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Woo, in fact, this month, Einstein. in fact, November 1915, um, Einstein completed his general theory of relativity. That's the, um, not the theory of general relativity. I should say that. It's the general theory of relativity. So I'm just going to give a talk about how that happened. You know, who was this Einstein chap that you may have heard of? Uh, how did he do this? Um, how did he ruin his marriage in the process? <gasps> well, yeah. he was just this guy, you know? Yeah, that's right. Okay, stay tuned for that. On with the show. Shark cartilage has been sold over the years under the premise that sharks don't get cancer. And you might have heard this uh, usually written on the front of places that sell shark cartilage, I've noticed. Is this um, why flake is such a popular meat? No, it's shops? just cheap and easy to okay. catch. But uh, in fact, it's not actually true. Sharks do get cancer. Um, Who would so have it's thought been... false advertising in the... Wildlife trade. Yeah. Um, no one's working to cure shark cancer either. It's, it's lost. No, it's, no. no. Um, maybe they're working in favour of it, what with you know shark coals and that sort it's of true. thing. Um, but it's actually been known for over a century and a half that sharks do develop tumours and die as a result of cancerous growths. And even if they didn't, um, it's not entirely clear how taking shark cartilage supplements would actually give you any benefit mm. against cancer anyway. That doesn't really make a lot of sense to me anyway. Um, Do you have an, an alternative animal-derived substance that we could make from an animal that doesn't get cancer perhaps, Stu? Well, not too sure about that. But what it does show is that the demand for cancer-preventing products uh, kind of shows how scared people are of getting cancer. They mm -hmm. will pay lots of money 
um, to, you know, to avoid getting cancer. And, you know, the, people always talk about the cure for cancer as being, you know, that's what modern medicine's all set up to do. We've got to cure cancer and all that sort of thing. Um, but look, the shark doesn't hold much in the way of answers. It's just a way of selling shark cartilage. But one animal that may provide some insight into cancer is so big that it is used to describe something obvious that people are ignoring. And in this case, the elephant in the room is the elephant. Um, (laughs) So elephants have much larger bodies than humans, obviously. And that also means they have lots more cells than human bodies. Mm. So there's a lot more cells in an elephant body than there are in a human body. Especially in the nose. Well, (laughs) yeah, but... You know, all over. They've got big ears as well. They're they're, they're just big. They would probably have a lot more uh, microbiology as well. Well, certainly they, you know, they're mostly vegetarian, so uh, their guts must contain all sorts of things. Imagine the diversity. Um, But what that should mean, having more cells in their body, more elephant cells, uh, should mean that they have a greater chance of developing cancers because they live for between 50 and 70 years Mm. as a natural lifespan. So um, it would be anticipated that more cells means more chances that the cells go bad and go cancerous. But in fact, they have very low cancer rates compared to human beings. So while the chances of a human dying from cancer are somewhere between 11 and 25%, uh, studies of the cause of death in elephants show that they only have a 5% chance of dying of cancer. Hmm. So it does happen. They do get cancers, but just at a much lower rate. Than humans. So some recent research that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association has shown that elephants produce a compound that may help suppress the formation of tumours. Um, so the study is entitled Potential Mechanisms for Cancer Resistance in Elephants and Comparative Cellular Response to DNA Damage in Humans has shown in this study, that elephants have um, almost 40 times the number of copies of a particular gene that codes for a compound called P53, which protects against cancer. Um, So humans have fewer copies of the gene, and in some cases, people have a particular condition called, and I'm not sure how this is pronounced exactly, but Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, which means they only have one copy of this gene, and those people with this syndrome have a 90% chance of oh, contracting right. cancer. That's awful. Um, but so what they did, they took uh, cell cultures of elephant cells and cell cultures of human cells, uh, and the elephant cells self-destruct at twice the rate of human cells when they induce cancer growth. Oh. And the scientists actually believe that this is why elephants are not extinct. They they predict that if elephants suffered from cancers at the rate that humans do, they would have gone extinct a long time ago because they would have all died of cancer. Is this also why they can never find the elephant graveyard because elephants self-destruct when they get cancer? That, the, the individual cells do. The whole oh. elephant doesn't just sort of blow up. Right. Um, no, but <laughs> they did go in search of the elephant graveyard, but uh, the elephants remember where it is, obviously, yes, because yeah, they never yeah. forget. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if the, if the elephants did have the same sort of uh, cancer rates as humans do, then they would probably have gone extinct already. Okay, interesting. Um, so they hope that this research uh, will lead to effective cancer treatment for human patients, but they're not really sure how it's 
useful uh, mm. to know that, you know, elephants have all these extra copies of these genes. Mm. We can't really go and multiply copies of the genes in humans without genetically modifying humans in some way. And they may have deleterious effects on humans. Like well, that's right. Yeah. I mean, Yeah, there um, may have been an evolutionary reason why mm. we don't have so many P53 genes. Yeah, yeah well, that's, that's the other thing. Uh, but, you know... Th- it's great that they can understand why you know because it, it's been a, it's been a biological mystery um, why do why do elephants that are so huge and have so many more cells mm. don't get cancer as as uh, frequently, but it doesn't really explain why humans do. So we're actually sort of the anomaly ourselves because we are very susceptible to getting cancers of all different types at all different periods of our lives, mm. um, and we're actually more of the anomaly than the elephants are. So you reckon? Well, in, in a lot of ways, um, the, the, the number of, um, you know, by, by cell count, we should probably have a slightly lower okay. rate. Um, but there's also, there's a couple of other animals that they know um, have very low cancer rates. The naked mole rat. That's one of my favorites, yeah. Yeah. Um, doesn't seem to get cancers at all, yeah. which is interesting. And the bowhead whale. The bowhead whale doesn't, yeah. doesn't oh. seem to get cancer. And also another, another very large animal. So they're... That's always been an anomaly yeah. too. So well, it's all, I guess, I mean, if you're going to grow large and you need to be able to get to a certain size to reproduce and that sort of thing, you need to not get cancer to get that big. That's true. That's true. I mean, yeah, they wouldn't exist if they did. Yeah. So, and, and that's exactly what they're saying is that, well, it's, there's got to be a way that they do it that mm. we mm. are not capable of. But naked mole rats, they're not big critters. No, they're not. They're no. very small. They're also the only um, mammal known, I believe, that has a, a kind of... Um, a queen rat. There's a queen rat, and then the other ones are kind of worker rats. So they've kind of got that eusocial structure, it's called. So they have so a, hive. a hive. They have a, a hive, hive of, of naked mole rats with a queen. And all cancer-free. Yeah. Science. The final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. So, Claire, what's the buzz? <laughs> well, everyone knows it. Um, bees are pretty much the best insect, right? I mean, of all the social animals on the planet, including um, naked mole rats, uh, there are very few that um, top the bee for complexity, uh, beauty, mysticism, utilitarianism. Their usefulness, certainly. Yes, and of course, their usefulness. Uh, even if you are allergic to bees, as I am, you can still appreciate the majesty of the bee. Uh, In fact, they are the world's most researched social animal, um, which is pretty amazing in itself. Kind of shows how important they are to to human civilization in a way, I guess. Absolutely. And it's very obvious why we love bees. Uh, They are hugely important, as you say, Stu, for agriculture, are directly responsible for pollinating a third of what we eat, including, importantly, chocolate and coffee. Uh, they give us honey, nature's candy, and one of the most energy-dense natural foods that we know of. 
but something that you might not consider as important that they also give us is beeswax. Is that how important? Is that really important? It is. It is quite important when you're looking at as important as those other things. Well, is Maybe that, is not it, as important. Is but that is that why people say mind your own beeswax? They're saying. <laughs> You keep your hands look, off my beeswax. Yeah, this is my beeswax. That's your yeah, beeswax. Yeah, yeah, let's all yeah, look yeah. after our own beeswax. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, I'm Possibly. sure that's how it came about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, beeswax, minding everyone's beeswax, has led researchers to discover how long we humans have been interacting with bees and using bee-related products. Hmm. So you see, previously it was thought that we started harvesting bee products around four and a half thousand years ago, um, which to put things in perspective was around the time that the pyramids were built. Um, actually, you can see like little bee hieroglyphics um, in murals in ancient the, Egypt. You can say the pyramid was a big beehive. <laughs> ben Carson was wrong. It wasn't, it wasn't a grain store, it was a beehive. Yeah. No. No, strike that from the record. Um, <laughs> So new, so new research published in Nature this week by researchers from the University of Britain has changed this idea somewhat about how long the human bee relationship has been a fluttering and flourishing. Um, they've now pushed that date back to almost 10,000 years that we have been hanging round bees. Oh. Yeah, us and bees, 10,000 years. Um, and the way that they did it was analyse a whole lot of ancient pottery um, that had beeswax residue in it, hence the beeswax. So did they, were these, was the pottery actually like beehives or is just they used the beeswax to seal it? Or Yeah, well, they used the beeswax to seal it, yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, if you think about it, 10,000 years ago, there were very few waxes for humans to use. Um, An earwax made the food taste funny, so they had to find another alternative. <laughs> it's not really a wax, though, is it, earwax? Ceremon. Yeah, it's not a real um, wax. It's a waxy substance. As you can imagine, beeswax was a pretty hot commodity. Um, it was used in medicine. It was used cos cosmetically to develop new technologies and um, to make things waterproof, which is pretty handy. Cosmetically? People right. People beeswax on their face and... <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, well, you a lot make... of a lot of cosmetics um, include beeswax. Okay, yeah, lip balm, you know, lip balm, that sort of yeah. Thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but but the waterproofing one, I, the I think waterproofing the waterproofing one, one would have really is pretty. That's a big important. breakthrough technologically. Yeah. It's like yeah. all of a sudden we have, you know, even if they had cloth and that sort yeah, of thing, now we've got waterproof rivers, cloth. You can cross rivers without getting your camera wet. <laughs> Um, Keeps your tie drip dry. It's really useful. <laughs> so <laughs> the great thing when you're studying ancient beeswax, um, the great thing about beeswax is that it has a very unique chemical signature that's very easily recognisable to chemists, maybe not to me, but to um, a trained chemist. Uh, and also one of the benefits of the waxiness is that it's hydrophobic or waterproof nature means that the beeswax doesn't degrade. So even though it's been thousands of oh. years that this ancient that these ancient um, pots um, and pottery have have been around, they don't degrade because of those um, because of the waxy nature of the beeswax. 
So when scientists took samples of thousands of different um, ancient pottery objects, they were able to look at the chemistry and see if it aligned with what they know about the chemical composition of beeswax um, and showed that not only is honeybee exploitation a lot older than what we thought, but it's actually a lot more widespread than what we thought as well. So it, it was established in North Africa and um, the east of Europe as well. So geographically, um, bees were a lot more widespread and distributed and abundant than we originally thought. Wow. Yeah, but let's just fast forward 9,300 years. Um, and like many animals or plants that benefit humankind, we've become quite good at propagating and looking after bees. Do you guys know the name of someone who propagates and looks after bees? An apiarist? Is that the one? It is. Very good. Yes, yeah. Um, so be- the bee being Apis mellifera. The bee yeah. being Apis yeah. mellifera. Mellifera? I mellifera? say mellifera <laughs> because there's no Latin speaking yep. people around to correct me anymore. <laughs> and curiously, someone who looks after apes is called a beearist. Is that, that true? Is no, true? That is not true. <laughs> <laughs> so since the 19th century, there's been um, a couple of innovations that have really improved apiary and beekeeping. There's been a swarm of innovations, I think, is what you're looking for. I think it is. I yeah. think it is, yeah. Um, the movable frame hive, uh, the smoker, which mm-hmm. calms bees and masks any emergency intruder pheromones that the bees might be giving off. Yep. Um, the comb foundation maker, apparently this is very important, so the, ne- so the bees know where to um, build their comb. Mm-hmm. And a honey extractor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so unsurprisingly, this is a field of science that really, and animal husbandry, that really supports innovation. The, um, the squeezy honey, honey bottle, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so a very honey- important a yeah, very yeah. important that innovation. wooden thing with the, uh, you know, that you use for the honey. It's got that kind of, it's round. The rings around got, it. Yeah, I don't yes. know what it's called, but you used to be getting honey out of the pot. That's, yes. It's a honey dripper. Honey dripper. Honey dripper. Thank you. Thank you Absolutely. The term. Um, uh, so, yeah, it, it, it supports a lot of innovations mm-hmm. and these innovations are still happening. So just this year, two men from New South Wales launched a crowdfunding campaign to develop a new method to collect honey, one which doesn't disturb the bees while you're collecting it. So their new innovations around plastic, um, it's, it's sort of like a plastic movable frame, which the bees build their um, wax honeycomb on. But the difference is they've got this lever that's slotted into the hive, which moves the honeycomb slightly and sort of breaks the little hexagons um, uh, slightly apart to make a channel. And then the honey just sort of flows through this channel, flows to the bottom um, and comes out a pipe at the back. So they don't actually have to disturb the bees at all. They don't cause any trouble. They don't even need to use smoke when they're collecting honey. It just pours out of the hive. Apparently you can do it while sitting in a t-shirt and shorts. So it you, sounds do, pretty amazing. Do you have to um, pull them apart periodically to clean them? Because, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to have honey that's been sitting around for too long in a dirty beehive. It doesn't go off there, does it? No, it's well, got, no, it's it got is, natural it is, um, antibiotics. It's actually because of the sugar concentration. But yeah, i just just wondering about, you know, at times you would have to open it up, I would think. I you probably couldn't do times, that in shorts and a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> when you're cleaning it, you might have to put on some protective gear. Yeah. But um, they aim to crowdfund $70,000. Um, and since they started crowdfunding, it, it just went gangbusters. 
and they've raised over $12 million wow. for this innovation. That's a lot of beehives. That's a lot of beehives. That's pretty amazing. That's some good yeah. honey money there. Yeah, honey money. Yeah. Yeah. So even after 10,000 years of human and bee interaction, there's still a massive buzz around this. Why didn't you hear what the sting was there? <laughs> So November 2015 is, is a big time, obviously, in scientific commemoration, because why is that? Anybody care to guess? Uh, this is when Einstein published his general theory of relativity. That is the one. It points to, points to stew, a, a, big, um, mm. a big piece of honey cake to, to stew. <laughs> uh, was when he finished it. Uh, he didn't actually publish it. Oh, okay. Um, for a little bit after that, but that's when he, he was he showing it. it to people. He was. He was. Privately. He was showing it off. He was showing it off, and thereby hangs a tale of which I shall relate to you. We all tell the story of how Einstein um, did this. Did this thing. This was his. Um, this was kind of his crowning achievement. I know it was he lived for another what fifty years or so after that, or mm. forty years. But um, it was. This is kind of the general theory of relativity is seen as like this. Um, the most. One of the most beautiful theories in physics. Like it was a huge leap forward in understanding of the way the universe works. Um, and um, a lot of people said that people have said that some of the other things that he he worked on, someone else probably could have come up with them. But the yeah general theory of relativity was just such a, a leap beyond really our understanding of, of how gravity and and the universe and space and time work. That yeah that maybe it would have been a very long time if he hadn't come up with it. So what does it mean though? Well, it is about it is about uh, relativity. It is about what happens when there is gravity and when things are accelerating. Look, let's 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 look at the story. Let's, let's set the scene here. Let's, we have to start ten years before that in nineteen oh five, which was Einstein's Annus Mirabilis. This was um, commemorated obviously ten years ago. Um, where this is that was his year where he published four very influential papers. Um, I'll just tell you briefly what they were. There was one that was called a new determination of molecular dimensions. Not his best-known work today. However, it was his most cited paper because mm. it looked at the um, the movement of small particles through liquid and had many practical applications in things like well, the dairy industry apparently and the cement industry and other stuff like that's that. That's where all so the citations are coming that's from. That's where the citations are coming from. He was, was doing it to try and determine the size of molecules and, and Avogadro's number and that sort of stuff, but it had practical applications in industry. He had one on Brownian motion, which is about the movement of Again, the movement of small particles in liquid, but this is like things jiggle around when they're in, in water, little little particles of pollen, whatever. And that's because atoms are hitting them, essentially. Mm. And this is another effort by Einstein to try and prove that atoms were real because only by these atoms hitting these things could you explain this motion. Um, he also did the photoelectric effect, which was basically proving that light is made out of particles. Um, this is one of the big steps forward in quantum theory. And he did his special theory of relativity. And this is the one for which most of us know him, which is the E equals MC squared stuff, where we discovered that time and space are relative depending on how fast you are moving. 
So all fairly important stuff. Um, quite varied. It is quite varied, yeah. And this yeah. is all in one year. Yeah. Uh, he was um he he really he really put it all out there. And this is the the first one was actually his his doctoral thesis, his doctoral dissertation. Um and it was like kind of the safest paper as well that he thought that no one's gonna argue with this one. But of course it was relativity and quantum theory that he got famous for eventually. Um, as you know, as everyone knows, he was working in the, the patent office at the time, the Swiss patent office. Uh, this is, he was actually looking for a job in physics, but um, it wasn't easy, especially when he, he hadn't actually passed his doctorate yet. Um, he hadn't got great marks either because he was kind of working on these, these big weighty topics that he wanted to, to achieve rather than studying for exams. Um, but also, though, it turns out the patent office at the time was hiring physicists and engineers because, you know, electrical technologies were still fairly new at that stage and so they needed people with the technical ability to understand these things a whole lot of new inventions coming through using new principles of physics and yeah they really needed some of the the people on the cutting edge to really understand what was being done when you think about it yeah back a hundred years ago when uh yeah even things like radio were still fairly new and that kind of stuff well yeah and there was no qualifications for electrical engineers so having a physicist is probably as close as you could get yeah, so he was working in the patent office. Um, he was married as well by this stage. He was married to um, a Serbian woman called Mileva Maric, who had actually been a, studying physics with him in Zurich. Uh, she was, I think, one of four students in their, in their class. And, of course, being a woman, it was, it was quite unusual for her to be studying. She couldn't actually study back in her native Serbia, so that's why she was in Switzerland. Um, and, yes, she, she, you know, Einstein had was really fond of her at the time, of course. Um, he had these great dreams of, of the two of them writing papers together. He talked about relativity being their work together, their joint, their joint thing. But it, it didn't quite work out that way, shall we say. Um, he was kind of a bit of a distraction to her. She didn't end up passing her exams. And in fact, um, by, in 1902, she, she fell pregnant with their, their first child just before they were married um, and had to go back home. Um, no one actually knows what happened to that first child, whether she was adopted out or, or died young. But um, yeah, it was not a good time for the, for the Einsteins. But um, eventually they married after Einstein got his job at the, the patent office because they weren't allowed to get, basically weren't allowed to get married until he had a solid job, essentially was the rules in Switzerland at the time. Um, yeah, so he, he worked there for a while and um, he stayed there for a while because even though he was looking for work as a physicist, it actually paid quite well in the patent office. And that, it was while he was there that he had his, his big insight, which gave him the general theory of relativity. So the special theory of relativity is called special because it only works when things are moving at a constant speed and without, under the, not under the influence of gravity or anything like this. Now, Einstein was basically, he said, he said that he was, in 1907, he was sitting in a chair um, in the patent office, when he suddenly realised that um, if a person was falling, they wouldn't feel their own weight at all. And that was this, this kind of, made him almost fall off the chair himself, um, having this, <sighs> this realisation. Basically, he realised that the force of gravity was not real. Um, there wasn't a real force, and that you could get the same effect if you had something accelerating as well. Like if you were in a box in space that was being accelerated by rockets, you would not know that you weren't in a gravitational field. This is kind of a big leap forward because, um, you know, 300 years earlier, Isaac Newton had based also 200, 300, 300 years earlier, Isaac Newton had shown that gravity was a force. Now Einstein was showing that gravity wasn't a force. So anyway, everything turns around. 
so this became Einstein's obsession for the next the next few years, and it really kind of um, yeah dominated his life as he tried to to develop this theory. He tried to develop the maths, which was actually quite complicated. Um, it uh, kind of distracted from his his marriage though as well. So he was um he was moving around. He was talking to other physicists, trying to get this trying to get this um this work underway while his wife Maleva was uh, basically left at home looking after the kids. They had another couple of kids. Um, he was swanning around being a physicist. She was kind of shut out from the physics lifestyle. And, uh, yeah, they, they were basically going further and further apart. Because when, when he was home, actually, Einstein didn't do much apart from just work on his, his theories. And um, she never got into physics. No, she never got back into physics. And, yeah, from all accounts, Einstein was, not, was just obsessed with his work. Like, he would mm. look after the kids, you know. They, he'd be seen pushing a pram with a, a notebook on top of the baby. Or, um, <laughs> this is what I would say, he'd be rocking the crib at home and writing with his other hand. He was basically never stopped his work. Um, yeah, so he, he got a few jobs outside the patent office. Um, eventually, he, he got a good job in Berlin. Um, but Maleva didn't move with him to Berlin. That's about when they, they split up. So he was left there alone in Berlin. Not quite alone because he by this stage he'd actually reacquainted with his, his cousin Elsa Einstein, who he later ended up marrying as well. Yeah, I know it sounds a bit weird. Mm. Um, it a lot in those days. Yeah, it it did like they, they had a lot in common it seems, <laughs> including the name. Um <laughs> he he really yeah, he really with Malaya gone he really threw himself into his work and apparently his his health quite suffered for it as well. Not of course, Germany was also at war. This was in the middle of World War One, so um, there was kind of supplies were limited, so people weren't getting good, I suppose, good food and everything like that. Um, Einstein, in particular, wasn't eating much or sleeping much. He was just basically working full time on his on his theories, which is again, like I said, was pretty. It was pretty difficult. Um, he had to consult some other people to help him with the maths. How old would he have been at this time? He, good question. He would have been in his, I think, in his thirties. I think at this point. Um, yeah, so he basically he got in in about in that mid nineteen fifteen. He gave some lectures at the University of Göttingen, um, which is in Germany, I believe. And there he met a bloke called David Hilbert, um, and they started talking about the the maths. And Einstein was sort of starting to get on the, the right track. And David Hilbert, who was a clever mathematician, um, you know, was inspired to I'm going to help you out. Um, so by then, that stage, the race was on and um, Einstein basically had to try and get the, the finish line before Hilbert did. Um, so he he basically, in November is when he actually finished the work off. And it, it started in a series of weekly lectures. And essentially, he developed his theory between the weeks of these lectures. So it started on the 4th of November, he had his first lecture. Um, so he talked about it then and he... Then he was worried that Hilbert was going to get ahead of him. So he sent Hilbert a letter saying, here's what I've come with. He said, agree with you. And Hilbert goes, oh, I'm thinking of something similar. And so it's quite a bit of back and forth between the two. And um, it really, I guess, spurred Einstein on. And the final lecture he gave, which was on the 25th of November, where he completed the theory, um, was his, his finaling of the, the general theory of relativity. By that stage, Hilbert had actually sent a paper off to be published on the 20th of November. He'd sent a paper off. So there have been a lot of debate about whether Hilbert got there first. Um, but it seems that... Nobody knows about Hilbert. No, well, people, physicists do. But it seems like Hilbert was mostly just um, following Einstein's, what Einstein was doing. In fact, Hilbert later corrected his paper in December based on what Einstein had done. So it seems Einstein right. really did do it. 
Nailed uh, it first. Yeah, on the 25th of November, um, 1915, was basically when he com- presented his, his completed version of it. And that, like I said, was his crowning achievement. It was, it was verified a few years later when people made astronomical measurements. Arthur Eddington looked at the... Um, the uh, bending of light rays by the sun, which is one of the predictions of Einstein's theory, and that made Einstein a worldwide celebrity. Um, by that stage, his marriage to Malaysia had broken up. Um, they'd been divorced, and then a few months after that, he married Elsa Einstein and went on to be the famous bloke that we know. Possibly if Hilbert had a crazier hairstyle, he might have been <laughs> noticed more. Yeah, maybe he just didn't have a moustache as yeah, well. Yeah, just the, the iconic... Mad scientist. Doesn't have the right name, really. He's a mathematician. His work is known a lot, used a lot in quantum mechanics, Hilbert. Um, But yeah, I don't need to go into that. Um, Anyway, that's the story of Einstein and and relativity. So there you go. Think of that. 100 years ago, one of the greatest theories ever in history was, was done. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.